0: Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we welcome Jack English to the podcast. Jack is the principal and general manager of Illumination Systems, a rep in the Denver metro area who proudly represents the conglomerate of Cooper Lighting. Jack has 42 years of experience in the industry and today he's here to talk to us a little bit more about his business about what he's seen over the last 40 years and how there's been an evolution in this industry and also an evolution in what it is a a manufacturer's representative does how they've had to shift, adapt, and where their place is uh, today and moving forward. Jack, welcome to the podcast. It's good to see you.
1: Thank you, Sam. It's good to see you. Thanks for
0: coming over. Thanks for hanging out. I know that it's almost springtime here in Colorado. We're excited to- Only a couple more months, right? <laughs> yeah, spring gets yeah we're excited for the leaves to finally bloom here, and uh, we're kind of on the tail end of what's been a heck of a, an 18 months here, a global pandemic. How's that been for you?
1: It's been a challenge. You prepare yourself for things that you don't think will happen, and I don't know that that would have been in the scope of pandemic and economic collapse but it's been challenging but i think that uh, we've stabilized and things are looking better
0: good to hear yeah. i know that everybody has had challenges but what's cool is we're all still here we're Absolutely. all still breathing you know jack i've gotten the chance to know you as a friendly competitor for the last 10 years until about two years ago that's right if you're out there listening jack and i went head to head in the denver market for about a decade we had a lot of fun getting to know each other's products for Probably all the wrong reasons, but we had a good time, uh, you know, going back and forth. I'm just super happy to have you here today and to be able to have this conversation and just really talk about what it means to be a rep. Before we dive in, Jack, give everybody a little bit of history. Who's Jack and how'd you get your start in lighting?
1: Like most people, I always say this, you don't seek this business out, it seeks you out. And very similar to a lot of people in the industry in particular on our side of the business, I didn't come into this. From an engineering background or a construction background. I, I'm actually a liberal arts guy, and it was more of a finding an opportunity to get a job and provide. So I ended up uh, in a training program with a, a regional distribution company. And after a couple of years, I realized, you know, there might be more exciting things than selling connectors, and lighting offered the best opportunity. So I gravitated that way to a rep.
0: I mean, Wago connectors are pretty cool. Wire, are. wire nuts are bad. <laughs>
1: they have their stories, okay? <laughs> but you got to believe in it, right? <laughs> you do have to
0: believe in it, yeah. and I will give you that. Lighting is a little bit more exciting today. You're the principal, and you're the GM at Illumination Systems, known in the local hood as ISI. <laughs> How'd that show up on your doorstep? And how has your career progressed there?
1: Well, I I started there in 1990, and Illumination Systems has a pretty long history, uh, dating back to the 30s. Uh, We were originally called the Blend Company and literally had echo pots and pans and a lighting company. And the owners rode around in a car uh, in a three-state area and took orders for echo pots and pans and fluorescent. It was nascent years for the fluorescent industry where it started taking off in the 30s. And uh, so the, the legacy started there. And have represented a Cooper brand, Halo, since 1962. Halo! Halo! <laughs> That's the way I like to answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know the guys down at Cooper always make <laughs> make big jokes about that. It's, it's just it's like a dad joke. It never it, gets old, yeah. right? It's, it's, pretty, st-
1: it's always bad, though. It delivers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> dad joke that always delivers. Yeah. It's interesting, Barbara Horton calls people like you an accidental tourist in this industry. She was one of them and she coined the term and I'm copying her forever. Your business was almost an accidental tourist in the entire industry too. It started out as pots and pans and now you're selling lights, you're selling IOT, you're selling controls. You guys are, you're doing a whole bunch of stuff today. If we go back to kind of the beginning of past the pots and pans and, and when, you know, your business became proudly what it's known to be today, Talk to me just a little bit about you know what the value of manufacturers rep was back in the in the 80s and the 90s.
1: When I started in the agency business, we were more of a uh, we provided more of strictly a service, and the service was is to uh, to get in front of the design community with the latest and greatest version of basically a fluorescent two by four lay-in and for uh, the sexy part of it, it might have been some uh, wall wash, it might have been some track light in a lobby, you know, but it was a fairly consistent model and that model was old. It was a traditional model uh, again from the 30s and really the first 20 years in industry, that was the dominating or dominant, I should say, uh, source, uh, were fluorescents. You had some development of the incredible uh, offering, I think maybe the worst lighting fixture ever made, the parabolic. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) made sense at the time. Yes, it did. It did. So, you know, agencies were not even remotely what they look like today.
0: Because just to clear things up, internet wasn't around in the 80s? No.
1: No. And really, you had such a limited offering. That started to change a little, really, even starting in the early 80s. Uh, Bill Lamb, who was an MIT professor, not uh, the inventor of direct indirect, but certainly a pioneer in the types of applications, but again, still with the same light source, which was a fluorescent tube. So you were limited to four, you know, two, four, eight. You know, so it was very repetitive. Again, we were a service company, so we would call, make sure we got cut sheets in front of people, discussed anything that might be exciting, which I always felt like was very limiting at the time. And really that was, the change there was the first attempt at electronic balance, which was a colossal failure. There were almost 100% failures in those, and people remember those days. So I don't even know what that oh, is. You're, you're, yeah, you're, it's, it was shockingly bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we start getting into the 90s, and frankly saw much more sophisticated I'll say architectural offerings and a lot of it was predicated on the PL lamp which later became you know the CFLs but it started out as the as the compact you know excuse me as the PL lamps you know you saw a lot more um, design architectural you know pizzazz, for lack of a better way to put it pendants wall sconces all started really taking on a much more architectural look
0: as you and your business had this opportunity to start to promote and, and share more products you were the conduit. I mean, That's correct. there was one way to get things out, and it was to take a manufacturer and go into a local marketplace, and people relied on you. I mean, they really wanted to see you. They wanted you to show up because you were the way they saw new things. Right. As the parabolic shifted to more architectural products and the marketplace and lighting started to expand in the early 90s, What was it like for you as a manufacturer's rep, as a business? Was there an opportunity to grow? Was there a requirement to grow?
1: Were more people calling you? What was going on? There was an opportunity to separate, honestly. If you were in a position to have someone like a visa in late 80s, early 90s, you started seeing, again, architectural products showing up in particularly the wall sconces and pendants with those guys. If you had a good offering and you were able to work with your architects and engineers, and convince them that we had a particular solution in a in a direct indirect and efficiency started becoming very important. So we kind of moved from the PELs to the, you know, the compact fluorescent. So we became more valuable. And it was a lot more opportunity, Sam, to get out into a marketplace and talk about product. Versus, hey, you know, I know you're working on a school, I was in the Georgia market at the time when I started, and it was, hey, here's what we have, here's our solutions. They meet the Georgia school board spec. Now we were talking about, okay, we can have a mix. We can have the two by four form factor, but we can also, at this time, we can throw six by six or, or eight by eight direct indirects and throw in some architectural sconces that actually reflect architectural trends of the time versus you know what lighting does, uh, manufacturers decided were simply functional level stuff.
0: There's a critical point in this whole tenure of, of your 40 year career we're in the 90s, things are cool, you're getting opportunities, and then the World Wide Web turns itself on. Yes. www.tyty.com. Anybody out there remember Beanie Babies? I do. It was like (laughs) the first website I ever went to. I was like, I don't know, nine years old. All of a sudden, people have an ability to get access to information in a new way. That didn't kill your business at all, Right. but things had to start to change. What happened when the web showed up? How did it benefit your business? And how were reps required to start to do more in order to stay relevant?
1: Initially, when the web showed up, the entry level point for a lot of manufacturers just wasn't there. There wasn't a sophistication among a lot of manufacturers to develop websites and you know something that you could navigate. They were very difficult to work with. To your point though, it did start opening up opportunities. When you are calling on an architect, an engineer, a contractor, their time is valuable and that is, has to be respected. So there was a certain amount of time to show a certain amount of stuff. The real benefit from it was is the depth it offered you from your line card and a particular manufacturer. The depth was there because at their discretion, architects, engineers, designers, contractors, I can keep going down the list, I won't do that every single time. I'll just refer to it as the (laughs) industry. The channel. Yeah, the the channel, the industry. You know, they could see the depth of product and it created another expansion of personnel at the rep level because now we needed to have a smaller group of customers that we worked with so that we can make sure that we gave them the attention and could focus on what their needs were with that being augmented you know, by a website, by the World Wide Web.
0: And if you look at it today, obviously everybody has a website. Absolutely. (laughs) There's a lot of digital tools. (laughs) There's a lot of automated stuff out there. Take us to the finish line of today, although hopefully this podcast is timeless beyond today. You know, where are we at today in terms of what the business and what the rep world has had to grow and, and continue to take on in terms of responsibility?
1: This is something I think won't be a secret between us, but you realize from your experience at the rep level We had to refine what we did. We compete with, we'll use the terms channel. We have people who sell direct. We have people that, you know, manufacture, they're a distributor, they're a contractor. So it's more, you know, people like to use cliches, the wild west, that's not really what it is. I won't say it's uh, infinite, but there's a vast opportunity out there for, you know, an influence. Uh, from the market to decide, hey, I want to use this. I really like this specific fixture from this specific brand. And it may be an internet reseller. So they sell direct. You have to have a contractor goes and buys it with a credit card. So we're competing with, instead of tens of manufacturers, thousands of manufacturers now. So we have had to uh, focus more and concentrate more and make sure that Our story gets told in a very compact, appreciative way. Manufacturers have to focus more on not being the drivers, but actually learning what customers want. When I first went out and started talking about LED, this is when I, for me personally, when I understood the expansive nature of what was going to happen in our business and what it was going to mean to mine, because, you know, selfishly, it all comes back to that, right? Talking to architects, the conversation was, I will say, less about the technology and more about the opportunity. And bringing the opportunity to that market and bringing it to lighting designers was a discussion, oh, you mean I can have a one-inch fixture? Well, you can now. Uh, That was never a possibility before. Or I can do these kind of things. I can curve. I can bend. I can have uh, long life. I can have very, very small form factors. So when the market becomes expansive, and I've used that term twice now. I'll try to use some imagination and come no, up with something I mean <laughs> it,
0: To your point, it, it expands, right? Yes. It's the need for product expands because more buildings are being built, more people are in the profession. There's more manufacturers out there. I mean, yes. everything, really, everything is exploding in our industry right now. Yes. There is... There's almost a surplus of of products out there. Um, I think that's completely accurate.
1: I honestly can tell you, and uh, anyone that's on the line cards that we have in in our different agencies, there are lines that we have that I don't actually know who they are anymore. If you went back, and I think this is important to talk about what it means to be a rep, supporting 40 lines 15, 20 years ago, that was a lot, 40 or 50, but when you're 150, 160, 200, or or across our three platforms in six states, we represent over, I think it's almost 350 lines because we have some individual lines and territories that we have in others, so. I mean, that is a massive, massive, massive
0: responsibility. How many people are on your team across six states? You guys don't have 4,000 people working for you.
1: (laughs) No, no. On our personnel list, on on, our company, we think we're unique in this. We don't list everyone that works in the company. So no accountants, no, you know, no HR no IT sure. people. So we call of our, our employees forward facing their salespeople. We have you know, seventy plus people doing that. So you've got seventy in, in you know, just for the sake of conversation, right? There's a whole back office that
0: isn't necessarily, as you said, out there, selling and promoting no. these products every day. So you've got 70 people across six states promoting 300 manufacturers. Let's say they launch an average of seven new products a year. That's over 2,000 products a year that somehow, someway,
1: 70 people. Now, Sam, s- I'm from Georgia. <laughs> that math was beyond me after you said uh, seven, I think. <laughs> it's It is a lot of products
0: and I think when people turn around and look at kind of the I'm going to say burden that's being put on you to get out and promote all that stuff
1: it's impossible it's certainly challenging there's been other shifts fundamentally in our industry that uh, all of the majors have, have certainly done this and it's uh, lent itself for our other representative excuse me our other manufacturers that we represent is that a lot of responsibility for actually managing the business again we were a service company uh, when i started uh, in particularly in the rep industry 38 39 years ago in that we just got an order on a piece of paper that somebody mailed in a lot of times. We actually were using telexes. I'm going to sound like someone's grandfather, because I potentially am someone's grandfather, but not in the way you think I might be going with that. <laughs> my, my children are certainly old enough. <laughs> I don't think there's any stray babies out there, though. I so have, uh, I understand. Uh, but it allowed the Acuities and the Coopers to shift the primary responsibility of project management of uh, customer service into the agency. So... As you're aware our base commissions are pretty ridiculously low <laughs> and yeah, I mean we, we've had to add personnel to support our business.
0: You're obviously a Cooper. Uh, I worked at the acuity agent and it's no secret, you know, you you're selling droppers, strip lights and these commoditized goods. It's not like they're paying out the 10, 11, 12, no. 13% commission that once was seen. It's 3, 4, 5% commission and if anybody out there thinks any business can be run on a 3% margin well, you'd have to be in the grocery business and you'd have to sell, you know, four million dollars every single day in oh, order oh to yeah. stay alive. Yeah. So, you know, the lighting industry is not the grocery industry. I want to take a quick break. And okay. when we come back, let's chat a little bit more about that increased responsibility. Uh, obviously, you know, holding the value of presenting products and being able to share those those things called prices with people. Yes. What what goes into that story? Some people call it a game, some people call it the black market, some people call it the wild west, (laughs) but there's absolutely a reason and a formulated, authentic way of of how you go to market and why you do what you do. Sound good? Sounds great. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, the Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you this podcast. They also have a breadth of short videos to keep you informed, updated. They're short, entertaining. You should check them out. That's L-Y-T-E-I And welcome back. Over the break, Jack and I were catching up just a little bit more about how really crazy the rep business is. He and I both have had a little bit of experience, or maybe I should say he's had four times as much as I have because that's the accurate truth. He was telling me that his dad was a PhD and he always tried to explain to him what it is he did professionally. Running into business, you'd think you'd have an elevator pitch, but the bottom line is Jack, what a rep does is complicated, not because it's not always changing, but because there's just a lot that's going on.
1: Yeah, a lot of moving parts, and again, cliche. It's complicated, but it's very complex also because of relationships. Relationships create their own challenges, and you know, building opportunities so the backside complexity of being an agent, as we had discussed earlier, you know, a decent-sized agency when I started in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a is a pretty big city. I think it's a 6 million metro. It's kind of a cosmopolitan place. It is.
0: Yeah, there's certainly a few people that live there.
1: Yeah. A major agency might have 12 people. Again, you look in just Denver, and if you took the top four or five agencies and combined them, you have hundreds of people involved in the process of going back to project management, customer service, interacting with the channel, with contractors and, and distributors and, and the design community. So I touched on earlier some of the, I won't call them burdens. You know, you take this on and you, you get to make decisions. We're independent business people. We are contracted to provide services to the people we represent, but we are not paid by any of those the comment would be from those guys well yes we do pay you a commission but we're not in a traditional sense you know and we're not employed by them so we are independent and they we decide what that burden might be right now it again it's customer service project management quotes quotes is an incredibly expensive proposition for a rep and you can say well and i'll touch on a little more later well if you just did this but that's going back to the simplicity of it, right? If you just <laughs> did this, or maybe you only do that, yeah, y- you're
0: bringing up a lot here, right? There's all these things that you're providing as a service to the customer, but you just mentioned that you know the manufacturers say we pay you. Well, they pay you once you know it's in their best interest, right? I.e., you've got an order for them. Yes, your business is predicated on working for free. You guys go out That's into correct. the marketplace every single day to develop and establish relationships to create opportunity. You have 100% of the risk.
1: On the flip side, some could say you get 100% of the reward too. Talk to me a little bit more about that. To do that, I would comment also that our responsibilities have evolved also. We provide design support opportunities for the design community, again, because of complexity. Controls are something that I would never have imagined are, occupy the space and time in our industry that they do now. They're very critical. Pretty much by law, you have to meet control standards on every job. So we have significant investment there. So when I start combining all of these and we talk about the free aspect of it, again, there is an argument you do eventually get paid. And sometimes that's eight, eight months later. But
0: I mean, every business has to make money.
1: Right. And so to basically get out there and get, you know, our opportunities out there, I always tell our guys, if you hit 333 in baseball, you're in the Hall of Fame. If you hit 330 as a lighting agency, 33%, you're in the Hall of Fame. That's a pretty good hit ratio. And I'll make the math easy for me, again, uh, so that, you know, I won't challenge the uh, cultural and social uh, limitations that I have. To write $100 million worth of business, you have to put $300 million worth of business and risk into a marketplace. And when I say risk, I know this is hard to believe, but we actually make mistakes on jobs sometimes. <laughs> and when we make those, that is not something that we can turf off. We own those. We pay for those. You know, there's an element, and I want you uh, to understand because I think you do, and I want to make sure that the conversation here is... is uh, Uh, This isn't a cross to bear. I'm not representing the entire rep world here. It's just my observation that, you know, we also, because of our relationships, and they're supportive, I consider them partnerships. I know that's such a corny thing to say, but. No, uh, it's
0: as a rep, you sit in a place where you rely on relationships because you have to create a level of trust in both directions, the designers, the contractors, the distributors, anybody in the channel wants to know they can count on you because at the end of the day, you do become the sole conduit, so to speak, no pun intended, (laughs) to the information when it comes to where is my stuff? What does this cost? Why is this broken? Well, who's going to fix it for me? What else comes into play? Oh, hey, thanks for catching the new updated series and you know repricing it and putting a new part number together uh, and making sure that everybody on the project knew that what was specified was discontinued, but you've got it covered for us. Right. These are things reps are doing every single day. Obviously, nobody's talking about that when they're just calling you up for a price. <laughs> ¶¶
1: You know, I think there's an outsized impact of lighting and of lighting reps on the construction market. You know, if you worked your way down the scale, these are old rules more than likely, but they're still fairly applicable. And when you get into a more sophisticated job, you know, the ratios can change, especially for the lighting. It could certainly be higher. But, you know, the old adage was $10 million job, 1 million electrical contractor and $100,000 worth of lighting. And so. When you look at the impact of that and then you understand the conversation about reps, again, no chip on the shoulder here. It's just, I sit around sometimes and I'm like, I don't know exactly what it is that we do that puts us in this position other than this is kind of a secondary conversation. But if you look at a job, a toilet's a toilet, a doorknob's a doorknob, you know, millwork, it's wood. And that's a tens of thousands of year old proposition, you know, construction proposition. But we literally are providing a specified product, and you're familiar with this term, but MTO, made to order. Let's just touch on that for a second.
0: To have something that's made to order is like the ultimate luxury, right? Right. You're providing a product that is made to order. It's made to meet your requirements, your specifications. Now, obviously, they have to put you in a box to some extent because people can't just make everything custom under the sun and run an affordable or profitable business but that's also why there's 500 manufacturers out there across you know six different reps or five different reps in every major market, so on and so forth. There is so much time, effort, and energy that goes into getting that ready. And then those people have to carry all that overhead until somebody decides what they've designed is worth it. I mean, the luxury of the opportunity to have something that's unique and customizable to a designer does require a lot of support along the way. And those people have to get paid. And the only way they get paid is when it finally gets ordered. Like you said, there's a ton of risk. The biggest thing that your agency and really any rep agency is responsible for is not only taking all of that stuff and putting it together and working with the channel and the community to make it happen, but assigning a price to it. And when I say it, I choose those words cautiously, right? You, as a rep, assign a price to an order. There is a price book. It's not published. And it's in your lap to do with it what you want. Talk to me a little bit about why that's the right way to do things.
1: You know, the pricing discussion, especially a price sheet, is reflective of the past. When it was a troffer downlight world it was much easier to go okay here's what we make here's how we make it and this is you know the five offerings i have in troffers. this is the six products i make form factor for direct indirect so here's what they are it's simple it's very very
0: simple it's a parabolic it's sheet metal with a louver a (laughs) lamp and a balance right
1: and we all copied ourselves and so they did a really good job copying each other. We, yeah. we did, and we got away with it most of the time. There would be slaps on the hand, but it happened that everything looked exactly alike. We shared parts. So a little bit on the, the MTO conversation, the made-to-order, that is really where the pricing dynamic comes in. You know, frankly, there are legitimate reasons for, we won't even say customizable, but there are legitimate considerations for why requests are made for a particular fixture to have this level of Let's just call it performance. I want it to dim this way. I want this color temperature. I want these combinations of things, and I want them in this. I think that that's awesome. I think it's very, very good for our industry. It's made lighting. It's made lighting cool. It has. We're not a doorknob or a toilet anymore. Those sounds like pejorative terms for people. I mean, lighting is a technology business. It is. We literally... I'll share this with you. I I have a friend. I call it dot-commed out, meaning he took stock and he hasn't worked since 2001. He used to call me in the 90s and say, hey, what's new in your industry? And I would say, nothing. We have a T5 now, which is really just a small version of a T12, we still have a ballast, and it's still in a two by four, but we're well beyond that. So we make it to order, and when we ship it, there's some onerous things with that. You can't always return them, you know, so there is uh, some downsides to it. But it makes it difficult to price anything out of a sheet. Uh, You're aware of this. Most of the pricing that we get from a manufacturer is confidential. It's not to be shared. It's a starting point for us. And this is always a point that I think that I do struggle with. And that is, is we are subjected to the same competition that the market provides, right? I have competitors we were talking about. I have thousands of competitors now. I have Chinese products that, you know, nothing wrong with them. It's not a comment on their value. It's just a comment on... There's a lot of stuff out there, and there's a lot of competitors. And that's what drives price. So I think that there's always been somewhat, in my mind, a disconnect between what actually is being said about how we price things and we do things. But the bottom line is a lot of investment, a lot of back of house people have to be paid, a lot of forward-facing people have to be paid to call on you. Manufacturers do not pay for samples. We pay for samples. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody wants a mock-up, it could be... $2,000, $3,000, 2000 $3,000, and, you know, don't do it. You don't get the job. But the relevance of what we do is not established by, and I will be, I'm being completely sincere, it's not established by a contractor, a distributor, or, or the design community. Our relevance really is determined by who we represent. And this model is still around, the, one of the few left, after, you know, 80, 90 years. And it's because we are able to bring all those things in together. And that cost when you're working on super thin margins and you're working on, again, generating a substantial amount of work that you may or may not get, there's a tremendous amount of exposure there. So it's just too simple to say, here's a price sheet. You
0: you mentioned earlier that if you can you know get 33% of the orders you quote, you're doing really good. 60% of what your company's working on, you never see a penny for. No. So to think about that is always interesting. And I think what's tough is on a job-by-job basis, you guys are in every single vertical you're working with, every single contractor, every single architect, you're working across the market. What you do from a business perspective is very much thought of holistically, of finding all the opportunity to get your piece of the pie. And that means sometimes there's people that are involved in jobs. and. You know, the circumstances are almost a victim <laughs> of to how the the rep model is set up, which can sometimes I think be tough to stomach and swallow. But what's really curious to me is sitting, you know, going back to my days as a rep and thinking about it, y- you always wanted your customers to win. Yeah. Y- you always yep. you always wanted everybody to get what they wanted to. Yet at the end of the day, there were all these outside factors, which you've just kind of discussed and described, but As you look at that price sheet and that made-to-order thing, I think the one thing to notice is, you know, how many times, Jack, does a, a manufacturer call you and say, hey, why did we lose that order? And you say, well, you know, you gave me your price, and, you know, I put my markup on it to support my staff that supports the market to get you guys opportunities and meet the needs of our customers, and it was too high. And they say... Why didn't you just call us? We would have lowered it. It's not like you guys get a holy grail of a price sheet. As you said, it's a starting point, and everything has to become a conversation because everything is made to order, because everything is so fragile and dynamic, yet at the same time, collaboration and teamwork can truly bring something together.
1: And it does, and I do think that collaboration and partnership is real in our industry. And, you know, I want to go a little further and touch on, I think, the most significant dynamic in our industry in my 40 years. It's two letters, and it really arose out of the Corps of Engineer. And they introduced a term to our industry called value engineering, yes. So, like all bad ideas, or good ideas, it, again, allows someone else to determine your relevancy, right? You're a designer, you worked really hard on a job. Seemingly, the customer likes it. It's in budget, I can keep going and going and going. And yet, at some point, we now have activist owners. We have generals, reps, electrical contractors, and we're all looking at, at angles, right? It's a competitive world. It's strangely transactional, Sam. Most industries, you build a relationship with someone And, you know, let's say at the general contractor level, you like certain electricals, there's going to be a percentage of jobs that you probably just pass their way. I would think electrical engineers, architects have their customers that they work with. I know they do. You'll end up with a significant part of that because of price competition and because of VE or all equal, whatever that might be. I don't know what that even means. Or Uh, or
0: basically what you're saying is anything
1: besides what was originally suggested and specified. Correct. Yeah and so even though we have relationships with you know the channels we end up it's very transactional for us it's how much is jack you know you do all those things for me and these things are really good and i do it out of partnership and i appreciate our customers you said it i'm old fashioned i want the owner to get what he thought he was getting yeah every, that, that's mean,
0: important everybody deserves to get what they thought they were yeah. getting
1: but i quoted it competitively and i was low and i hopefully was specked, and now all of a sudden I'm in this completely transactional market. Yeah, we did use your price to get this job, however, the owner wants money or we're going to introduce something that we feel like is going to bring value to the job and we're going to be able to hand money back to the owner. People leverage you in your position to make changes. Yeah. You know, I hear complaints. We all do. Well, why don't you do this or why did you do this? Well. It's transactional, and really, there's no punishment for being a bad actor. When I say that, I don't mean that respecting the wishes of the design is not a good thing. I think it's a great thing. But there is an element uh, of our market where they can go out and VE every job out there and never write a spec and, you know, unfortunately have nothing to lose. I feel like we all should fight a little more and be more, you know, in partnership and make sure that we deliver what you wanted. Do I and am I going to try to make every opportunity to make money that I can? Yes, but that's not an add-on to the job. The job the job was quoted and accepted at a level that was in budget, was fair to the electrical contractor and the general and, and to the design community, hopefully. So um, I don't know that we sit around on our side and go, wow, electrical contractors make too much money. Our architects make too
0: much money. Uh, my father-in-law was an architect, yeah, and, and I can I, promise
1: you he didn't make any money. I, you know,
0: I don't, I don't think many people sit around and think people make too much money unless we're talking about those people in cryptocurrencies <laughs> or uh, or the hedge fund guys out in the Northeast. You know, Jack, I, this has been an incredible conversation. I just want to thank you again for stopping by to talk more about a big part of our industry. That probably doesn't get discussed as much. We should probably continue this conversation in part two. I just want to ask, though, if anybody has any questions or they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can find Jack?
1: Website, lumensys.com, and I will answer my phone pretty much seven days a week. One of the great things about being in the business 42 years now is uh, uh, what little shred of you know morality I have keeps me awake all night. So uh, <laughs> small joke. Uh, so I'm, I'm welcome and always would like to talk to people about you know, in particular, Sam, I think we can all identify. I call it the postmortem. I, you know, we all have a postmortem on what our relationships are. But the critical thing is, is why don't we have a conversation that leads us in a positive way? And uh, that's not cliche. I, I really want to make sure that people have a good experience in dealing with illumination systems and the people we represent.
0: That's awesome.
1: Jack, thanks again so much.
0: Good luck in your six states with your 70 stress people (laughs) representing 300 brands as we ramp out of a pandemic everybody releases twice as many products as they want to and you're tasked with the responsibility to make sure that hey the world keeps moving in the world of lighting we'll talk to you soon thanks sam it was a pleasure see you hey it's sam real quick if you like this podcast do me a favor and go back to that app that you're listening this in and click that like follow or subscribe button that's the best way to never miss another episode of the light pod where we talk about all things lighting with people who are curious about it business owners entrepreneurs lighting designers and so many more until next time cheers